And I had this, this sort of strong feeling that I would either be eaten up by this feeling that I have no control over everything and I could just fall into this chaos or I could try and figure out a way to use it to my advantage. Chaos theory is a playable theater. When things are really orderly and we know where we stand, then we fall into these patterns and it can be very comfortable to be in a world of patterns, but you get a little name tag, you fill out your name tag and then you sit down for a lecture on chaos theory. Lecture goes wildly, wildly off script. We need some structure in order to push back against structure. Our night of chaos theory, two people fall in love. Almost always there is a system so of life. We have to be in a place where we feel tumultuous. How do we apply these things, these structured rules of chaos, to the feeling of chaos in our lives? Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the masters of immersive experience create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. On May 18th, 2019, Jessica Crean took the TED stage under unusual circumstances to give a talk about chaos theory. And that's a lot of what I do as a game designer. I take these complex systems and I turn them into playful, interactive experiences. One of these experiences, a game based on a TED talk about chaos theory, gone terribly awry. Today, Jessica joins the Immersion Nation podcast to talk about leaning into the chaos of daily life, learning how to harness it, and of course, how one can turn a haiku into a full contact sport. Oh, and if you ever find yourself in need of an immediate dose of courage for any reason, go listen to her TED Talk. It is incredible. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So, as always, we must start out with asking if you had to choose some kind of fictional or fantasy world that you would want to live in or spend some time in, what comes to mind? And it doesn't have to be a specific world, I should say. It can be a genre, it can be a slight alteration of our present world, or it can be a book or movie or something of that nature. Oh my gosh. I mean, so, so many. Um, but I think the one that, that at least I'm, I, I've been thinking about spending time in is uh, the series by Patrick Rothfuss. I've been just wanting to live in the, the fictional world of Wise Man's Fear and The Name of the Wind and whatever the third book is when it comes out. Like that, that is a world that I would like to inhabit. Oh, I'm not familiar. What's, uh, what's the world like? It's called the King Killer Chronicles, which makes it sound sort of like it's about killing kings. But so far, that is really <laughs> not the case. Um, it's really just about this this one character who is making his way through this beautiful fantasy world and coming up against kind of magical creatures and making his he has to put himself through school, through university. And so he has a beautiful voice and he is able to sort of like rest on his his uh, abilities as a bard to get him through life um except when he's not of course and so he's going on this sort of epic journey to these different lands in that way it's a pretty traditional fantasy world um there are a couple of things that really stuck with me he's a, he's an inventor he's a tinkerer so he just makes these magical things that uh he sells or he gives to other people it's this kind of weird world where 
there's a great deal of commerce, but, um, but also he goes off to like fairy lands and I really, I'm doing a terrible job of doing justice to this book. It's epic is the thing. It takes you on this incredible journey and there are a few secrets in it that I'm just still just dying to have answers to. So I'm, I'm waiting for the third book so that I can know what the hell is going on in this world. <laughs> that sounds absolutely phenomenal. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. Well, wonderful. We will definitely, of course, wrap back around to that um, in a little bit here. But to get the body of the thing started off, go in the course of going through your TED Talk, um, you mentioned cats wearing scuba gear and haiku as a full contact sport. And it was left unanswered. Speaking of mysteries and things left unanswered, I have to ask, how exactly does a haiku become a full contact sport? So I participated in a game jam last year with the Philly Game Mechanics, who's this just incredible game community here in Philadelphia. And it was sports jam. Um, so I, I think at that time I was, I was doing this project of mine where I was just trying to at least conceptualize a game a day. So I went through a number of versions of sports, like what kind of sport game I would make. And being a pretty huge nerd, I ended up doing a sport that is based on the rules of haiku. So there are two teams and each team only gets to move five, seven, five times in the same structure as, as a haiku. Um, and it's turn-based, so you can only, only one team can actually move at a time. You can only move when someone else is moving. And your goal is to get baskets, sort of basketball style. Um, and there are some, some other rules that all like, take inspiration from haiku. But the gist of it is that you only get a total of 17 moves in order to, to get to the end of the, um, of the game. And if you don't, you have to restart. Okay. Okay. So does each team collectively get only five, seven, five moves or do they do, does each player respectively get that many? Each round you would get it. So there's two players per team. So if you and I were playing together and I was player one, I would get five moves and then I would have to pass to you. And then you would get seven moves to try and make a goal. And then if you couldn't do it, I would get five moves and you can only score on the fifth, seventh and fifth moves. Very cool. Very cool. I like the idea of having the the structure there being turned into turned into something that the where the cadence is not linguistic at all, but at the same time has to still be constrained by the similar uh, I want to say pentameter. <laughs> I feel like I should know this, <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> the the gold version of the game is that you have to actually say a haiku while you do those things, but it is very challenging. Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. Oh my gosh. That sounds like way too much fun. <laughs> yeah, it was great. We did it at come out and play um, last year and we had, we had a solid crew of humans and so, some, some kids who cried because they were sad that they couldn't keep playing. So I think that's a success in the game world, <laughs> right? Making kids cry. <laughs> yes. Yes invariably no 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 on for real though like i have started to measure the quality of fiction of any variety by how frequently it makes me cry just unabashedly (laughs) (laughs) um so how did you start designing games what was your path to to your current pursuit and your current role as a game designer I, I've been doing theater for as long as I can remember. And so I went back to grad school a couple of years ago because I, I loved making performance work, but I felt like there was something missing and I didn't know what it was. And so I wanted to try and figure out how to make the things that were in my heart because I knew that it wasn't just writing. 
And so in my last semester of grad school at this kind of crazy conservatory program for devised theater, where it doesn't start with a script, it starts with improvisation and it's very physical. And um, my last semester, I basically talked a bunch of deans at my school into letting me take a ton of classes for at grad level for like half a credit each. It's like, this is my last chance at formal education. I've got to get everything that I can out of this. And so one of the classes that I ended up taking just kind of based on this, this gut feeling was uh, a class on the history of games. And even from the first day, it completely changed my whole world. It changed how I think about making work. And it was just the, like the last piece of this, this puzzle of who I wanted to be as an artist fell into place with that. And, um, and I've just been making games ever since I had an incredible professor. I really have to credit him with, uh, with, allowing me to blend theater and games right away in the things that I was making and not insist that I start with any sort of tradition. He immediately let me break rules. And so that, that was incredibly freeing and has shaped how I, how I have gone about making things that are immersive and game and some blend of those two things together. Yeah, certainly. So what is speaking to chaos and the freedom to break rules? Uh, what is the chaos theory? Chaos Theory is playable theater. So it is a theater piece in that you you are coming to a space where I am a performer. I am I am not me in that space. I play this character, Dr. Genevieve Sayak, who is a professional chaologist, which is a real <laughs> thing. And but the audience plays as themselves. So uh, if you're coming to the show, then then you would be coming to um, to a meetup on on chaos and chaos theory. And so the, everyone who comes to, to the show is themselves. You get a little name tag, you fill out your name tag, and then you sit down for a lecture on chaos theory. Uh, it just so happens that this particular lecture goes wildly, wildly off script. Um, and uh, my character's job is basically to create, well, her job is to give a lecture, but she's terrible at it. So she ends up turning it into an interactive experience with the audience where the audience plays through games about chaos theory. So I took all these aspects of chaos theory, fractals and strange attractors and the butterfly effect, and I, I turned them all into these social multiplayer games. So they're, they're twofold. Part of it is to help people to embody this crazy abstract idea of chaos theory. And then the second half of the piece is how do we apply these things, these structured rules of chaos to, uh, to the feeling of chaos in our lives, this, this crazy of being in 2019 and feeling like the whole world is falling apart on us all the time. So it's about this blend of using chaos structures to help us to deal with these these feelings of losing control in our lives. Yeah. It's all comedy. It's, it's not serious, but it's incredibly, incredibly silly for a lot of the time. <laughs> comedy and incredibly serious, for some reason, get along quite nicely oftentimes. Yeah, it's my favorite combo. So... This may be the worst question that I've ever asked a guest, so I apologize in <laughs> advance, but could you potentially briefly explain what chaos theory is? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I've gotten so used to gamifying it. Let's see if I can do this. Chaos theory is, um, it is the structures of things that appear to be random in the world, but are, are actually not random. Um, like it's, there's an example would be like a dripping faucet. 
Um, it seems like these drips happen at kind of random times, but actually if you got right down into the minutia of it, you would find that there's a whole mathematical structure that supports exactly when a drop is going to fall. It is based on these calculations of like, how big did the last drop get? Exactly when did that drop fall? And based on that, there's a certain amount of bounce back. So a certain amount of water is hanging from the faucet already at the start of the next drop created. So even though it seems like these things happen randomly, there are all of these formulas at play that actually mean that that we can find out exactly when something is going to happen. So it's looking at the, the math behind things that seem uh, that seem unpredictable and figuring out how to actually predict when they happen. So, so uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, it almost sounds like chaos theory is less the theory and study of chaos, but rather the theory and study of things that are just simply a little bit beyond our present understanding of them and thusly appearing to be. It's a study of human fallibility or lack of awareness potentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's all about systems. Um, it's about finding systems in things that appear to be systemless, which is, I think, why it still is so useful in thinking about uh, thinking about chaos in particular, because we feel out of control when we think about chaotic situations, but almost always there is a system at play. So it's just up to us to be creative and uh, to figure out exactly what the system is that is underpinning our particular feelings at any given time and to be comfortable with living in that space where we're still figuring it out. So one of the main premises in your TED talk was the idea that we are naturally drawn towards chaos when we feel like everything is out of control. It's rather an issue of an excess of order an excess of rigidity. Um, why do you feel like people are drawn to chaos? Yeah, I think that people are, are drawn to chaos because we have a chance to, to be our best selves in chaotic situations when things are really orderly and we know where we stand, then we fall into these patterns and it can be very comfortable to be in a world of patterns, but it's not the world of, of fantasy where we get to be someone else or something different or something more or to fulfill all of our dreams. In order to do all those things, we need change. And so chaos gives us an opportunity for change and for growth. We don't grow when situations are stagnant or completely systemic. Uh, so I think we have to be in a place where we feel tumultuous things happening in order to be the versions of ourselves that, that we want to be. Otherwise, we have no uh, motivation for change. So we can have an internal motivation for chaos or there can be these external circumstances that happen that, that drive us to, to do things differently. And I think that's why we find ourselves pulled towards, towards chaotic uh, situations is that we want to be better and do better. And these are the circumstances that allow for that. Yeah, it's almost there's there's nothing scarier than the concept of stagnation or perpetual methodic living. Uh, yeah. I definitely relate to that in a very significant way. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, because I definitely want to continue down that rabbit hole before too long here. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get too deep into that, um, could you explain what? Uh, know thyself is uh, your recent piece at the Philly Fringe. Yeah, we we just wrapped like two days ago, so it's all this is all very very fresh. Um, know thyself is a gamified philosophy salon. 
Um, it takes the form of a museum. So we created this, uh, this museum, it's called the museum of philosophy, because sometimes in case you hadn't known by the title chaos theory, I just go with the really obvious titles here. Um, (laughs) But basically, groups go on on a tour of the museum and based on the choices that they make over the course of different exhibits, um, we'll go off to do different exhibits or different galleries based on um, based on what happens. So it's all about having meaningful choice making and, and consequences for our actions. And each exhibit takes the form of essentially a game or a gamified version of a philosophy. So I just did a ton of research and read about a lot, a lot of philosophers and turned them into, again, social multiplayer games for the most part, though there is still a solo track if you want to just sort of go off on your own and and play through some of these exhibits. Um, So you can take stoicism and anarchism and, um, oh gosh, probably at least half, at least actually probably about at least two dozen others and play through them as games. And there is a narrative uh, structure to to the experience. So the tour does take the audience on, um, uh, I'd say like a pretty significant character arc where again, uh, participants are playing as themselves. So it's a character arc, but it's an arc for you as a human being as much as anything else. Right. Right. That sounds absolutely phenomenal. And interesting because I feel like oftentimes the like philosophy in general is kind of misunderstood and I can't remember exactly who it was that was kind of making this distinction. I think it was someone who was responsible for translating or a recent translation of some of Seneca's work um, was making the distinction between philosophers and philosophologists. Um, (laughs) The difference between people who kind of just like to think about things and then those who use philosophy as something to be put into practice, whether that be through a game or through just trying to understand a little bit of the chaos that we live inside of constantly. Um, so the idea of turning that into a game just makes so much sense. How is this, how is this actually applied? What does this actually mean? Yeah. Yeah. The whole premise is making philosophy practical. Um, you have to be able to put your actions where your thoughts are. And so part of it is really just a little check-in for yourself. Oh, am I actually making choices based on these things that I believe? And if not, why? So there's just some look at, at whether or not we are actually living up to our own philosophical standards. And if we are not, then trying to figure out why that is, is it a fault of our standards or is it just our, um, our ability to put it into practice? Yeah. Yeah. The application tends to be so tricky, (laughs) Um, but (laughs) it's really, we try to make that playful. Yeah. It's really interesting how, how many or the degree to which immersive experiences tend to have this kind of underpinning theme of awareness. And sometimes it's not as direct as it sounds like it is or had been in know thyself. Um, but oftentimes it kind of is motifs on that theme. Um, is there any potential for a remount of know thyself at any point in time? Yeah, we certainly hope so. Um, there, I have some pretty grand dreams for, for multiple tracks of what it might look like to, to have some sort of like traditional museum style tracks or, you know, you can go into a museum and they'll say, Oh, Hey, if you want to explore this, here's a route you can take to explore it. So I would like to be able to offer something like that for this as well. Um, it's definitely an immersive experience, but we had to, like really build out a museum in order to be able to build the show into that museum. So um, there's a lot of infrastructure to it. Um, yeah, I would, I would love to do it again. I would be delighted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
but lots of infrastructure, lots of logistics always, yeah. always creates a lot of fun, fun barriers to tackle and play right there. <laughs> so fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would you be down to jump into the make it immersive segment? Sure. So far as the chosen fictional world, how would you want to see that turned into some kind of immersive experience? Is there like a particular mechanic or a particular line of thinking inside of that that you would want to see actualized or a way to recreate the whole world? Yeah, I think that the I think that creating this particular immersive world really hinges on being able to create magic. Um, you know, just one casual thing that we all run into pretty constantly in trying to make work. Um, right, right. So, but there is something sort of everyday, like a lot of magical worlds, it, there's no technology really in this world in the, in the sense that, or no, there's no digital technology. Like anything new is, is technology. So there are new things in this world, but we don't have phones or anything like that. Um, so I think that there, the challenge and the beauty of it would be to create things that just feel deeply magical, but also are really tactile. Um, and these, these tangible items that people would be able to hold and play with, and that those things would be able to reveal new information and new worlds, and that we would be able to step through portals to really sort of follow the same journey that this character, Quoth, goes through. Yeah. I really like the idea of the invention mechanic, too. Because I think that there's there's something about the idea of bringing something new into the world that's practical and accessible whether you know whatever medium that might be through like I feel like I haven't really seen too much explicit creation within immersive experiences so I feel like that would be interesting to try and play with too because I mean obviously immersive experiences very often are very much the act of co-creation of a storyline through improv and casting the audience and all that but the idea of like finding a way to actually have someone create something to enable the storyline within the space would be really neat. Yeah, I think that would be really phenomenal. And it feels so good to make things and to just have something in your hands that you have created also. I think if we could create that kind of workshop space, it would be really, really exciting. And and if there was to be digital tech in the piece, um, I just I personally have a fascination with trying to problem solve without going to digital means first. Um, but if it were to be there, like, how do you hide that in a world that is so analog? Like, how do you how do you build those things in without ever, ever showing the seams? Because I'm, I'm a pretty strong proponent of just never, never breaking the world if you can ever avoid it. So I think that would be a really interesting challenge as well. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. Because it is super easy to create in a digital space and more and more people are more comfortable with that medium of creation. But then just pulling yeah. that out and being like, nope not here we're doing things yeah. a little bit differently yeah there are there ahead. are a number of things that are just um also just particular challenge challenges one just being that telling epic stories requires epic amounts of time and investment um so i think it would also be really cool to create a world that you could either return to in installments um sort of like a serial but for for an immersive experience um 
which is sort of like how the books are coming out anyway. You only get a certain amount of world at any given time, and then you just have to go off and sit with it and think about it and wonder about it. And there's something really delightful about having that thinking time. Um, it is just a form of, of interactivity. You have to be participating intellectually in the story that is being told. It is, in some sense, really just like philosophizing as well, uh, trying to think about what this world might look like. And I think it might be really interesting to try to mirror that in an immersive experience um, instead of just a, an in and out, one and done kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that thinking time is definitely super difficult to capture because... I mean, time very often is that thing that's come up against because you only have these people in this space for so long. And oftentimes um, I was just chatting with uh, Melinda Lau of Whisper Lodge and her line of thinking is like immersive experiences are really great for kind of short circuiting the need for someone to like spend a lot of time getting contemplative with like a piece of art and Mm -hmm. kind of go to the source. But at the same time, you do need to be intellectually engaged and the idea of finding a way to create that as a part of an immersive experience, I feel like a would be incredibly tricky because I feel like people in many ways and more and more so are not necessarily predisposed to sitting down for a, for a good long introspective, you know, adventure through, through one's consciousness. Um, but it does do so much. And if you could find a way to do that, like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Part of Know Thyself is actually really dedicated towards providing thinking space, again, in a really like playful way. But I had a couple of people leave the, um, the tour experience and uh, to varying degrees of, of delight and rage, tell me that they didn't know that they would have to think in the piece, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because it's, you know, it's a philosophy piece. So you sort of assume or I, I not everyone, I assumed that that, that thinking would be sort of implicit in there. Um, One would think. But that's definitely think. not the case. Yeah. So some people were really happy about it. And we had a couple people who sort of approached me like, like I owed them an apology uh, for them having to think in the piece, <laughs> which is really interesting. That is, that is, that's so curious. Huh. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is, a, is, you're totally right. It is a really delicate, delicate thing asking people to, to think about to think about the world, especially if you're trying to guide them in, in that thought process in a particular or provide particular guiding questions in which to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Which act in so many ways wraps back around to game theory being a lot of that line of thinking, being kind of running thought experiments, running theoretical scenarios and situations. Um, and that's something that's also no longer nearly as relevant in the world that we live in as opposed to like, say, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when game theory was like the most important thing for a while there. Yeah. Yeah. We have we got a different kind of game theory now. Yeah. yeah. Rising around play. <laughs> most certainly. Um, insofar as the people coming out of said experiences, like almost a little bit frustrated by the whole thing. Like, what do you think that people were looking for if they were surprised by the idea that they were going into something that is a philosophy museum, something that, you know, is kind of what it says in the cover to some degree anyway, at least insofar as the expectation to spend some time thinking. What do you feel like folks were looking for in an experience, if not that? My guess, I can only speculate on this. Um, I haven't had any specific feedback on what people wanted differently in this particular instance, but my guess is that because there is this sense of I guess even in the title of know thyself, that it would be very, very individualized. Um, 
sort of like a BuzzFeed quiz, but for philosophers. And that's not what the piece is at all. It's very much about who we are, but also how we interact and fit into the world at large and our communities. And because so much of philosophy is about that, it is about creating and crafting worlds and, and understanding um, systems. It's all philosophy is thought systems. Games are systems of action. So really, I'm just putting these two things together. Um, but I, my guess is that people came in wanting to to have a sense of like, you know, if you were an ice cream flavor, what would you be and have an experience that, that <laughs> guides you to like, oh, you are a Socrates or you are an Aristotle. Um and there's a little bit of space to, you know, find find commonality and delight in the thinking processes of others, for sure. Um, but but m- much more than that, it's really about um, communal communal thinking and philosophizing in order to create um, a different kind of world. Yeah, yeah. That search for personalization, I think, definitely comes up quite a bit in the immersive realm, especially, you know, yes. like how many experiences have been inspired by someone coming out of sleep no more and being like, all right, well, we want more one-on-ones, which is phenomenal. But at the same time, the outlet for human connection that immersive experiences create definitely speaks to a need for human connection. I think that's a lot of what people get out of it. Um, So in the context of thinking about one's place within a structure Insofar as the idea that we crave chaos at the same time, like I think it's pretty common for folks to have some fear of the unknown. Like, how do you feel like those two concepts balance against each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question. And full disclosure, I leave I live a wildly regimented life. Um, oh, interesting. My, I mean, like a deeply color coded time by time kind of existence right now. And I've been doing that for, for probably about almost two years now, giving myself an incredibly detailed structure, because if I don't have that, then I never play. I just don't have the space to be playful. So I need to know that most things are set in order to give myself some time to be absolutely wild in other ways. Um, and if I just let myself try to run free all the time, I would be absolutely paralyzed. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way, that we need some structure in order to push back against structures. So for me, it turns out I need a lot of structure in order to push back against it. So I think that these things are always in conversation and that if we feel out of balance, if we feel like things are too chaotic, we tend to, uh, a lot of us tend to shut down rather than lean into any kind of chaos when we really kind of need a little bit of both. Like we need the right balance of structure and also the space to, to push back against those and to completely mess with them. Um, yeah. Does that answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. It's a question of looking both ways and figuring out which one actually is going to kind of troubleshoot the problem. And it's interesting that you mentioned that you live a really structured and regimented life because I feel like I've seen that almost as a pattern for people who wind up creating incredible things and having space for flexibility and spontaneity. It's like it's almost like you need to be boring in some ways in order to actually have control over the times when you get to go sandbox mode and just create wildly and lean into that chaos. So yeah, that's very well put (laughs) out of curiosity. How do you structure chaos into the schedule intentionally? I think the most chaotic thing in, in my mind or in my life right now is, um, is my, my, my thought processes. Um, so I think the, the way for me, for me to lean into chaos right now is to try to not think about anything in particular and just see where my brain takes me. 
And that is again, a balance of, of giving myself a lot of, of structure. Like I meditate every day so that I can keep my head clear enough that when I do give my thoughts free reign, they don't just jump around. Um, they don't jump around at like 10 thoughts per second. It's more like three thoughts per second, which is just a little bit easier to follow. And then weird things will come up and I will either like write or continue to think about those things. So it's sort of like this, this Greek idea of like letting, letting ideas or creativity pass through you. That feels pretty chaotic to me because I have no clue what's going to happen. And then I just have to be the, the guiding force that says yes to these thoughts and no to the others. Um, which is, yeah, I think also just sort of a blend of, of having a structure and also just allowing the most chaotic or the most scary things to push through. Yeah. That and I, I really, really hard to, um, to, to, you've probably heard this phrase before, but it's pretty common in the game world, um, to fail fast, which is just this idea that, that you have to put your work out there before it's really ready to be seen by anyone. Um, because then you won't be precious about anything. So the more changes you can make right off the bat, the better you'll be in the future. So it gets really hard to do that in the theater. You know, people, the writing gets done right away and then the actors come in. And if you have this kind of um, hierarchy of who gets the material at any given time, it's very hard to go back to the beginning again. So, I mean, like bless my friends and family for coming out when I ask them to. And I'm like, hey, I'm having going to be incredibly rough. And then I get there and they're all excited and everybody's really happy. And then like five minutes in, it's clear that it truly is as bad as I said it was going to be. And everyone's just kind of sad and confused. And through that sadness and confusion, you know, like the next play test will be a little bit better. And the one after that will be a little bit better than that. But it's really, really, really bad in the beginning. Um, and I think that's, that's a kind of chaos that I've had to get really comfortable with is the fact that everything's going to be bad and make no sense for a while. And that I have to be comfortable asking for help in those moments. Uh, because if I don't ask for help, then, then I'm, I will never get anywhere better. Yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. And creating that space for failure is indeed incredibly tricky thing that really, I feel like theater especially is oftentimes not super conducive to, um, cause it's kind of the, it's the antithesis of, you know, the minimum viable product, the letting things go wrong, the iterative process, because I mean, almost similar to a book, like you do this thing and then you can't really go back and edit the book after it's been published. Um, right. And that is very much the case in traditional theater, at least. So I almost wonder if there's a certain way in which immersive theater is kind of the way that traditional theater is finding to become more of that, become more of an iterative process. Yeah, I think it is. I think with the devising process and immersion, all of these things get a little bit easier. Things evolve together rather than separately. Certainly. Um, could you explain uh, devised theater um, briefly for anybody who might be listening and is not familiar? Yeah, devised theater is it is sort of like immersive um, or like hookup. It can mean a lot of things, but basically the idea is that you're not definitely starting with a playwright and a script and then bringing actors in and casting a piece. It often comes from the impulses of all of the creators. So there can and I think often needs to be. Um, people in different roles and sort of traditional roles of director or performer or writer, you can still have all of these things, but everyone's making things together. The script is as much written as it is improvised. Uh, scenes that performers create end up getting worked into the piece as well as any kind of uh, structured writing that a writer might do. 
Um, so it, it's really just saying that, that the story, the narrative evolves over time through many, many, many brains, as opposed to just filtering through one brain at a time. And that's definitely something that I feel like has been the foundation for so much, so much immersive work where so many people start and find an entryway into yeah. figuring out how to create experiences in that way. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, I can't go on or I can't go on. I, I wa- keep wanting to say it as it <laughs> as it is rather than how it is written, you know, um, but maybe just starting with the name itself. I mean, obviously you have quite an affinity for philosophy, um, but what what is what is all in that name there? This I I love this name. Uh, I'm probably in the minority and thinking that it's like an okay name for a company, um, but it makes me laugh. So it is basically a, a really deep cut philosophy pun. Um, I like juxtapositions, and so Immanuel Kant is one of my favorite philosophers. Uh, he's super problematic, but basically <laughs> he just <laughs> he just sort of has this belief system that you can that to sit and think about things will be more valuable than actually experiencing them, that you can just add more knowledge to the world by sitting and thinking than you can by doing anything. Um, so it's just this incredibly, like stupidly logic-based thinking. And then uh, a koan is is like this unsolvable riddle, these, these sort of like um, Eastern philosophy idea that to struggle with something, to to just think about something that doesn't have one correct answer is um, can lead to the, to new knowledge in the world, and so there are just these like two weirdly oppositional ideas that that you could just create a new world for yourself by imagining it to be so, um, and at the same time, obviously, it is an immersive experience and game design company, so it is all about actions and creating experiences. And, uh, so it just makes me sort of giggle, just creating this idea that like you cannot go on just thinking logically, but at the same time, it's totally delightful to just sit with imaginary worlds. Well, I, for one, anyway, (laughs) think that that is a phenomenal name for a company. Um, that question was somewhat, uh, selfishly motivated because I got the con, but I wasn't sure about the koan. I wasn't not well versed enough to know that, but that I love that the idea of exploring unsolvable things or potentially things that are at least not solvable in a finite way um, versus versus Kant. That's phenomenal. Um, so what what was what is the evolution of I can't go on um, been like when did when did it start? Let's start with that. What was the inception of it? It sort of existed nominally for about two years now. I've been using the name before actually starting, you know, all of the official business LLC work. I should also say that one of my best friend's moms actually came up with that name, not me. Um, I just immediately latched onto it and was like, this is brilliant. Um, so yeah. So the, I've started out just as soon as it became apparent that, that I was going to need to to some extent, at least like take the reins on, on creating uh, work for myself and, and putting it out there. Um, I wanted to create an, an umbrella for that. And then I made, um, I made sort of my first uh, philosophy game and it is a destructible game. And so I was talking to, um, to Luke Crane, who works at Kickstarter and, he was saying, uh, when you release this, you're going to get, um, you're going to get a lot of flack for this. People are going to be really angry. 
um, that they have a destructible game. And, and so you're going to need to want to think about separating yourself from, um, from the game distribution side of things. So oh, that was really the moment where I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that is like the smart thing to do here would be to create a company. Um, and then it's just become just like a, a place for, yeah, for me to separate self from, from business goals. Certainly, certainly. Yes. Time to limit that liability. That that's interesting that, um, he was concerned about some pushback on the destructible game thing, because that's definitely, well, when was this? This was last year, a little less than a year ago, actually. Oh, really? Cause I've definitely seen destructible games becoming a, a more and more significant trend for sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, so creating so creating this entity, uh, I can't go on, starting with games, then evolving into chaos theory, and then of course know thyself. Uh, what what's next on the horizon for you? Yeah, so um, my hope is to to keep blending these worlds of having um, a company that can do immersive experiences, but also really tangible. Um, tangible game. So we had a, oh, an entire gift shop for the, the museum of philosophy. Um, and so people can and did like buy the, buy these philosophy games. I made probably close to 60 games for the piece, not all of which made it into the museum. Um, but I'm, I, I really love making things. So, so part of it is really just figuring out what the right balance is between experiences and, and tangible items. But there's also a bunch of public speaking that I'm doing nowadays about games and, so I'm going off to the Middle East to, to give a talk on games and immersive and creativity in the next couple of weeks. And so that's the next big thing that gets prepped for. Um, and Chaos Theory is currently running in New York. So I perform that once a month at Caveat on the Lower East Side. Um, so it's a lot of maintenance for that and making sure that we get all of the production work done. So there's there's a lot of, a lot of growth of current existing projects probably through the end of the year. And then I've started writing two new pieces. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I want to ask, uh, what is the, like, insofar as people coming away from the experiences that you've created, are there any particular stories that stand out to you insofar as maybe shifted, shifted mindsets, last shifted mindsets. I could do English, um, <laughs> uh, shifted paradigms, um, or just people walking away, just blown away. What have you like, are there any stories that come to mind in that vein? Yeah, we've had, um, we've had really great, <laughs> really, really great feedback. Um, for know thyself, we set up a comment box for the museum. And so we got some really lovely stories out of that. And we had a lot of repeat visitors, um, and people asking like, is it cheating to come back? And I was like, no, it's definitely not cheating. We also, our opening night, we ended up having people stay for back to back shows, um, so even though I was really only on opening night prepared to do one particular route, we ended up, I ended up improvising the whole second show just to give them a different series of games and experiences. So that's really satisfying to be able to do that. But chaos theory is probably the one that, that the strangest things have, have happened. Um, our opening night of chaos theory, two people fell in love. They met and fell in love and they're still together. They just came and saw, uh, know thyself, uh, last weekend and they'll update me with, um, with emails about how they're doing. And so that was, that's happened through gameplay. Um, we also had one person start his own company and, um, he raised like $1,500 in a board of directors in a month, um, after, after going through like the route of chaos theory. And, uh, so, he actually just built, bought and built a theater over the course of this year. 
and um, had his own fringe show up um, that just closed also yesterday. So that's pretty incredible and super exciting. He's a force of nature. Um, and so we've had a lot of things like that happen. People finishing projects, people adopting dogs or cats. Um, the, basically the piece ends up asking sort of this question, this pretty fundamental question of, of what do you want to be doing with your time? And there are certain, um, certain sort of checkpoints in place and gamifications in place that, in, that give people an ability to start doing those things. So there has been some really awesome growth that has come out of those. That's really incredible. I have, I have goosebumps. <laughs> all up and down like that that's amazing um that question of what do you want to do with your time is really it's one of those things that's like almost so obvious it's cliche but at the same time hard to kind of get enough leverage on to really yeah. to really work with oftentimes or at least do so consistently yeah I am curious, is there a place that people can go to find any of your speaking first off before we jump into the rest of it? Because I don't quite want to wrap up yet. Yeah, um, I think probably there are probably the most concise place is just my website. I try to post as much as I can, um, which is uh, my company name, com. So I K A N T k-o-a-n.com um yeah that's probably the best place to find um any of the, the speaking things that i've done wonderful, wonderful or to know what's coming up if you want to come check things out definitely so i think that as we are potentially coming up on time here um i have one more question before we start digging into um into more specifics about where people can find you, how they can catch up, wave hello, what have you. Um, you have time for that? Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. So the TED Talk, I can't leave this conversation without digging into the TED Talk a little bit. Maybe just to begin with, what brought you to the TED stage and your thesis on that stage as well? Yeah, I mean, it was really an evolution. Um, it goes back to this piece on chaos theory. So I wrote this piece on chaos theory. Okay, I'll take it back one step further. Um, November 2016 happened. And uh, at the time, not only was was the whole country, uh, or at least, you know, over half of us dealing with sort of profound political grief and fear. Um, I had just lost my father uh, a month before that. So there was just this whole world, this civic world and this personal world just completely exploding on me. Um, and I had this, this sort of strong feeling that I would either be eaten up by this feeling that I have no control over everything and I could just fall into this chaos or I could try and figure out a way to use it to my advantage. Um, and so that's what I started doing. I started exploring works of great agency. This was also right around the time that I came to game design so let's look at meaningful choices. How can we make these choices that will actually serve us in the world? And so it became this, this sort of like long exploration of how feelings of chaos can be sorted out in our, in the world. And so I, I made this piece chaos theory that deals with all of these things. And then a, a friend of mine, Michael Roderick, who is um, a, a wonderful theater human, uh, he he was invited to apply for this, this TEDx talk on, on the theme of chaos. And he wasn't even able to apply that year. So he sent it to me. And, um, and so I ended up applying for it. I think I got the application in 
at 11.57 p.m. on the day before late applications were due. It was like three minutes before the deadline. Um, and, uh, and then it was accepted. And so I ended up doing this sort of meta experience of having this fake talk about chaos theory, this fake meetup, this sort of fake TED talk on chaos theory the, and the char- about a character who is not allowed to speak about chaos because of her experimental research methods uh, was suddenly accepted as a topic at a real TEDx conference for me to be able to talk about experimental research methods on chaos. So it was this kind of crazy meta experience that that led me there. And um, and you can't do an entire piece. You know, the, the piece is 75 minutes. It is crafted to be 75 minutes. If it could be shorter, it would be shorter. Um, so I only have 10 minutes up on this stage in order to tell these stories and to, to sort of make these points about, about the role of chaos in our lives. So I had to figure out another way to do that. Um, and then, and so for me, it was just this, this finding the, the right action, finding the right thing of dealing with this thing that had been systematic in my life and then completely breaking off from it. So it became this sort of balance of, of performance and, um, and talk and lecture. Yeah. Yeah. And right at the end of the talk, um, you made the decision to kind of make a personal and significant change uh, right there on stage, which I'm actually going to leave ambiguous because this TED Talk is so phenomenal. Like, please go check it out. Like, I, again, speaking to like measuring um, whether it be fiction or any kind of media by the amount of times it makes you cry, like definitely check that box very quickly. (laughs) Um, so this demonstration of all the points that you were making within the talk, how coming away from that, has that sat with you? Wow. That's a really great question. Um, (laughs) okay. I'm going to answer this one, honestly, even though it scares me a little bit to answer it, honestly, which is that I was really freaked out um, after giving the talk. I had what I have been calling a vulnerability hangover of um, doing something that is really, really scary and uh, sort of in a performance state modeling behavior for an audience. And that's something that I have employed throughout chaos theory and in this piece is if you want people to be able to take like a level five risk in their lives as, as, a, as a model, you have to like set a 10 up there in order to, to show that it is possible. And so I walked away from this one, um, which was like years in the making, um, feeling, feeling kind of empty. And, and then after the talk actually came out months later, I had like these residual feelings of the same thing. And the only thing that has helped, which I have very conflicting feelings about is hearing, hearing things like what you just said, hearing that this actually does make a difference, um, that it, that it's not for nothing and that taking this risk and doing this thing that is actually so scary to me um, actually does does some good in the world. And that that I mean, that really is it is is just knowing that they're like hearing these feedback loops, um, which is complicated because it's really hard to even admit to yourself that that you need other people or that you need that part of the communication. Um, but that has just been the case for me in this particular instance. It's been really it continues to be a little bit scary. Yeah, yeah. But after all, how can you know, can you know, except for via feedback, exactly, right. you know, what, whether something has been potentially a righteous failure, a wild success or anywhere in between, um, if you don't have that external input. So I think that 
I think that that's definitely, that's definitely a positive thing to, to recognize the need for that. And that's not necessarily to you, but just as a general concept, um, because it is hard. It is hard. It's almost like looking for that externally feels as if it's something you shouldn't need, but yet at the same time is vital in acknowledging, you know, <laughs> back to know thyself and philosophy as a whole, one's part of the greater whole. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people find you? Now you mentioned a website. Um, and again, one more time, Ted talk that will be in the show notes, go listen to it. Um, but outside of that, uh, are there any other outlets or places that you would point people to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. In addition to, to website and Ted talk, the Ted talk name, by the way, is, um, gamifying chaos, embracing uncertainty through play. And I'm also on, I'm on all the social media. So you can find me on Twitter at, I can't go on, um, same thing for Instagram and Facebook. Um, again, it's I K A N T K O A N. And I'm pretty active on all of those. Um, Twitter is my really like humbling experience because like four people follow me, but, uh, Instagram and Facebook are, uh, where I'm, I tend to be more active, but I'm, I'm absolutely on, on all of them and can be found in all those places. Wonderful. Wonderful. And for anybody who might want to come check out some of your work in person or potentially, um, experience some of these games, is there a place where they can, by the games or come out to, um, if they are in the New York area there, um, to find your work. Yeah, definitely. Um, if you come out to caveat NYC, uh, you can see chaos theory once a month. Our next show is on October 6th. Um, and then we have the next one is on November 7th. Uh, so the November 7th one come out, if you want to just like decompress or have a drink and talk about the election afterwards, um, come out on October 6th. If you want to celebrate my birthday with me, cause it is the next day. Um, and uh, I have some games I mostly make to show right now. So I'll, I'll be at conferences. I'll be at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia in, on the first weekend of December. And I'll be at Indiecade out in L.A. Uh, next month, the first weekend of next month, I think, or Wonder- second weekend of, of October. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show and for this incredible conversation. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Of course, of course. Um, and of course, for those listening, all the aforementioned links, references, et cetera, et cetera, will be in the show notes at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Calling all immersive adventurers, explorers, connoisseurs, and artists. The immersive revolution is just beginning. All that is to say, we would love any feedback that you might have on the show. What do you want to hear more of, less of? Anyone in particular you'd like us to have on the show? I would love to hear your thoughts. So please rate us, review us, or just drop us a line on the website at immersionnation.com. I always love having conversations about this wide and wild world that we are both living in and creating. Once again, this is the Immersion Nation podcast. Thank you for joining us in this adventure. 